0: This morning's scripture reading is from Psalm 100. If you would turn to your Bible and read along with me. Verses 1 through 5. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good, and His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. This is the Word of God. Good morning. My name is Andrew. I serve here as the music leader on staff part time. And today I'm going to be preaching the word for us. And uh, today we're going to be looking at a theology of worship. So we finished our series in Colossians last week. And uh, before we jump into our next series, um, we're going to do a standalone sermon here on a theology of worship. So. We want to carefully consider what God has told us about the subject of worship, how we are to do it, under what circumstances, and in some cases, even the methods. Now, worship is often tied to singing, uh, but that's not the entirety of worship. We'll get into a more robust definition here in a minute, but let's begin by saying that all of what we do here on Sunday morning is worship. We are always worshiping, and that often involves singing, but it's not just singing, Specifically, we'll be considering um, elements of corporate worship in the church and how it ought to reflect what we understand about God from His Word and how it ought to be shown in our love and our praise for Him. We'll consider it corporate worship in its entirety and at times focus on our corporate singing. So today, and you'll see this in your outline, we'll talk about four main things. First, our worship is biblical, we are a people of the Word, and thus we worship by the Word. Second, our worship is God-glorifying. Third, it is Christ-centered. And fourth, our worship as God is Trinitarian in nature. That is, we worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no specific passage this morning that we're going to exegete, which we normally cover in our preaching here. Um, We faithfully plod through books of the Bible, and we understand them as a whole. But rather, we're going to look at what Scripture tells us about worship from both the Old and New Testaments, and then apply them to our lives. So this won't be a sermon that decides once and for all what the perfect worship service actually looks like or what the perfect songs to sing are. I think we have a tremendous amount of freedom to worship God in a variety of ways. But we want to do it carefully when we gather each Sunday as his local church. So our goal today instead is simply to recover a biblical theology of worship that leads us to a right understanding of who God has revealed Himself to be in Scripture and what we are to do with that. In your outline, the thesis says that our theology propels our doxology into worship. And our good friend and pastor, Matt Boswell, we sang a couple of his songs this morning, has a ministry unto this end called Doxology and Theology. And what it means is that our knowledge of God in Scripture should cause us to worship Him endlessly. The more we know about God, the more we should realize that He is worthy of all praise. So, as we get started, let's get into a a definition of worship, which is a little bit harder than it sounds. So, as one author puts it, and this is kind of a difficult thing to define, but one author says that everyone instinctively knows what worship is the same way that everyone instinctively knows what love is. Um, But that can mean different things to different people, but nobody has a hard time grasping the concept. But that's kind of a squishy and a subjective definition, and we don't worship a subjective God. First, let's describe just the word worship. It's ascribing worth and honor to something that is worthy. It's a combination of two words, worth and ship, and we are worshiping, all of us, all the time. It's not a matter of whether, but which. It is not a matter of whether we are going to worship, but which thing we are going to worship or ascribe worth to. Of course, we believe that something is God. It's the right and natural response of all created things to worship God, because He is worthy of it. But our worship is also distinctly Christian, because we are worshiping God for how He has restored us from the fall in Christ. So then, we worship in light of the new covenant, which is sealed by Christ Himself, and our worship is marked by affection and action. It is both individual and corporate worship when we gather together here on Sunday with other believers, celebrating what God has done as our Redeemer and anticipating what He will do. This morning we will tie a lot of what we see in Scripture back to what we practice here at CRC, and it won't be just singing. Singing is certainly part of worship, like we said, but when we take the Lord's Supper every single Sunday, we're actually worshiping, and we're anticipating when Christ returns and we're with Him forever. And it's no longer a high priest who administers the food or elders guiding us to the table, but Christ himself who feeds us. All that is worship. And unpacking our definition a little bit, Scripture makes a very specific point when it says that all creation worships. It says that everything that has breath ought to praise the Lord. It says the angels praise God and even demons fear the Lord. When the sun rises in the morning and it sets in the evening, when the wind brings gentle rain, to the farmlands when your flower garden is in bloom, when the mountains stand majestic and proud. All of it is ascribing praise to the God who made it all. After all, the heavens declare the majestic work of His hands. And this is all done by design, right? It's not a conscious choice of the rain to worship God. It's the only thing it does. Nature and creation are constantly testifying to God's power and might. Borrowing from pastor and Theologian D. A. Carson. There are at least three worship uh, reasons that worship, ascribing worth and honor to God, is a good and natural response. So the first is because we're commanded to it by God Himself. He tells us to worship Him with thanksgiving in our hearts, to come into His courts with praise, to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. The second reason it's appropriate is that the focus is entirely on God. Israel worshipped God who brought them out of Egypt, delivered them from their enemies. And the third reason is that God is the creator of all things, so it is natural that all created things worship him. We kneel before the Lord, our master. He uh, he is our God, and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Even in the throne room, we see this reflected. The four living creatures saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. For he created all things, and by his will they were created, and they have their being. And because we hold the word of God to be true, and thus these scriptures are to be taken seriously, we should then consider what the Lord requires of us in worship today in the new covenant. So we find ourselves at our first point in the outline. Our worship is biblical. Let's take a look at what God has required of us in His Word. So point number one, our worship is biblical. At the outset, we ought to be careful how we think about worship. Expecting the wrong outcome often leads to dissatisfaction, and using the wrong definitions can lead you to write a really terrible essay at the end of the semester, the kind that gets handed back with lots of red ink. This is especially true when we think about worship and even music and singing. Today's modern wisdom has put human happiness at the pinnacle of existence. We don't just want to survive. We want to thrive. We don't want to just live life. We want to live our best life now. And modern humanist religion beats this drum over and over again. What you're doing should make you happy. Sometimes we apply this to our worship. Without a God who, supreme, who reigns supreme over it, we're left with ourselves as the ultimate authority. If there's no God above us that we have to submit to, then we become God. And to nobody's surprise, we're not very good at it. We prescribe things like money, pleasure, power to make us happy, and none of it really works. We find that our own fleeting sense of satisfaction is constantly moving the goalposts, more money, louder music, brighter lights. So how how does all this relate to a church's worship service? Well, if we use our own responsiveness to worship as the measuring stick instead of God's Word, then we've got no choice but to use our own tools to raise and lower the bar. So if we approach worship and we use our own responsiveness, our own feelings as the measuring stick instead of God's Word, then we've got no choice but to use our own tools to raise and lower the bar. If the goal is raised hands during our singing, it makes a lot of sense to crank the music up, man. Pound that bass line on the last chorus. Put on a light show to stir the affections. I think fog machines work pretty well. But those things might stir our affections. It's kind of an empty pursuit. It's not actually biblical. That's the main point. It's not actually biblical. We want to be filled, like the Psalms said, with a sense of wonder at God's majesty. To do that, we actually need to behold His majesty. The best place for that, I would argue, is not in the music, it's not in the sound system, but it's in God's Word itself. What does God's Word tell us how we're supposed to worship Him? If we stir ourselves up only by artificial means, it's going to produce an artificial high. Sometimes we can start requiring our churches then to conduct their services in the way that we feel most pleasing. We might criticize some church for only singing old songs or some church for not singing loud enough or too quietly. Now, I do think there's a prudential element to the style of our worship. We certainly have our preferences and what we think is wise, and that's all well and good, but we need to remember that our worship ought to be first biblical and therefore based on what God Himself has explicitly required of us. This means it's not based on preferences or style, but on Scripture itself. So, let's look at what God has prescribed. So, in the Old Testament, we see in Deuteronomy that God has explicitly instructed the Israelites on worship as He explains the meaning behind the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So, first, we see that God Himself is our praise you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Deuteronomy 10, 20 and 21. Then he tells the Israelites where they shall worship him. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free offerings, free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and all your household, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. We're talking Old School Testament. Uh, This is the law being handed down and then explained and re-explained at Sinai in Deuteronomy. And I'm going to reference a lot of passages. You don't have to try and keep up. Um, If you'd like a copy of the manuscript later, I can give it to you with all the references. But this place that the Lord chooses would, of course, be the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Eventually, right, Solomon would build that. And the expectation is that the Israelites would actually destroy all other pagan temples and idols. They would reject all other religions and worship God in the temple, rejoicing together as they do it. The context of this passage had the Levites in mind who had no inheritance or land like the other tribes, if you remember, but the Lord himself was their inheritance. They were the ones administering all these sacrifices and worship in the temple. So sharing in temple worship with everyone included the Levites because they didn't have their own land or inheritance. So sharing the worship of the temple had a distinctly corporate aspect to it. It was also a means of fellowship across different groups of people. So we see that we're supposed to worship God for who He is, together in the temple. That was prescribed right at the outset. We can clearly easy for you to say—we can clearly see that God is both the focus of our praise, and He is to be worshipped together with all the people rejoicing. Now, on this side of the cross, and we reflect this in our singing quite a bit. We remember that God delivered Israel and dwelt with them, but we celebrate that Christ has united us us with God in his death and resurrection. So we can take a look at the Psalms here as well. We're going to see many examples of how we're to behold the majesty of God and how it describes his worth-ship. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, Psalm 29, 2. This is one of the many proof texts that describe how we ought to worship God for who He is. He's holy and He's set apart. His glory is splendorous, or it's magnificent. Letting Scripture dictate how we worship God then is crucial because it says that His holiness is to be worshiped and that His name is worth glorifying. Why do we do it? Because the Lord Himself tells us to. We don't often sing about our feelings about God, but we sing about God. Sometimes that involves our singing, but it's important here that we are worshiping and ascribing glory to God's name because that is what He has told us to do. We don't have time to look at every single instance of worship in the Psalms, but let's consider one more example. This is part of our Scripture reading today, Psalm one hundred one to 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Here we see singing paired with gladness and joyful sounds being made unto the Lord. This is the same language that's used to describe the worship of God as the Levites made sacrifices and peace offerings in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and it celebrates God as king over all the earth. This is the same kind of worship. The entire earth is commanded to respond, and specifically his people are told to come into his presence with singing. So let's look at some passages from the New Testament that inform how we're supposed to apply this today. Now, under the covenant in the Old Testament, Israel was given very specific instructions on how to worship God, which included sacrifices and offerings, celebrations and festivals, giving thanks and remembering all that God had done for the Israelites, which they were extremely prone to forget. They needed lots of reminding. But there's a shift in the new covenant with the advent of Christ. We're told in Hebrews... That the new covenant fulfills the old covenant, and that Christ is now the head of this new covenant, Hebrews 9 and 12. Where once we had a tribe of priests, the Levites, who were tasked with fulfilling and administering God's ceremonial and legal requirements, we now have a great high priest in the Lord Jesus, whose body is now the temple. That was actually a controversial thing. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it back up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, John two eighteen to 21. We know that not only is Jesus the temple, we're also taught in 1 Corinthians that the church is also a temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. And of course, 1 Corinthians 6 teaches uh, that the individual Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit within us. So how does this relate to how we're supposed to worship? Well, again, remember the Israelites were told to worship at the mountain at Sinai. They were told to worship God in a very specific place. He said, I will choose the place and you will go there and we will build an ark and they will have ceremonial laws and festivals and very specific ways in which to worship. And when Jesus was walking the earth, there was a lot of, well, there was a lot of controversy around His entire ministry. One of the many things that people and the Pharisees would criticize Him on, and the other Jews, was, aren't you going to the temple, man? You you, you can't just worship God anyway. You, You can't just do this anywhere. And He said, in John, He ties all this together. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So worship in spirit and truth there meant that this was no longer an argument over which place, which mountain, which temple was the proper one to worship at, but God was with them in spirit. So where God had once required temple worship under specific circumstances in the new covenant, we now worship freely together in Christ as a local body— so, we often say that the church is a, pla- uh, is a people, not a place. This is another way of saying that. The church is a people, not a place. We do not have to journey to a specific temple to worship. Wherever we are gathered here is where the church is. Our worship is not made Christian because we're singing together and we happen to be Christians, but because we are praising to God together for what He has done in Christ, confessing that He alone is our peace and our righteousness. Christ is the binding agent this morning. We see this in almost every aspect of our element, uh, every uh, element of our worship service here at Christ Redeemer, from our biblical call to worship, to our confession and assurance, to the preaching of God's Word, to our prayer, to the Lord's table, and even the fellowship we are sharing now in the service. All of this is worship together, united by Christ. Let's look at two more passages in the New Testament before moving on. So first in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, the Word of Christ here is referring probably to the teachings and the words of Christ Himself, and our singing is one way of teaching and admonishing one another as we lift our voices in worship. Our entire worship service here at CRC is aimed at teaching us about Christ, and our main focus is always to reform our hearts so that we are shaped into His image. That's evident in the way that we publicly teach and pray. But our music also teaches. We sing what we believe. So, we're incredibly intentional about what we choose for our corporate worship here, we want to model what we see in Colossians and sing songs that have solid biblical truth in them while also encouraging us to behold God's majesty and praise Him. We are reminding ourselves of scriptural truths when we sing together on Sunday mornings. Consider also Ephesians five seventeen to 21. Starting at the very end of 17, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The ESV commentary here says that being filled with the Spirit results in joyful praise through singing and making melody. This may refer to different kinds of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs found in the Old Testament Psalter, but it's more likely that Paul is actually referring to the canonical psalms and to the contemporary compositions of praise, which is what we just saw in Colossians 3.16, right? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Spiritual communicates the influence of the Holy Spirit's filling in the believer's act of praise. More on that later when we talk about our worship being Trinitarian. What we're doing on Sunday is a supernatural thing. Not only are we obeying God's commands to worship Him together with rejoicing, but we're being filled with the Holy Spirit as we encounter God through His Word, and we worship Him through song. There's also an element here where we ought to be preparing our hearts each Sunday to praise the Lord. Just as the Israelites prepared their sacrifices in their hearts to bring offerings to the Lord that were acceptable, we want to put away all malice, all lust, all sinfulness, all distractions, and place our gaze solely upon the face of Christ, letting that be the amplifier of our worship, not the music, not the lights, or the aesthetics. Now, we spend a lot of time here talking about how our worship is biblical, but I do think it's important... Well, let's now consider how our worship is to be God-glorifying. So the second point in our outline. Our worship is God-glorifying. So first, we want to acknowledge that whatever we do in worship, whether we're singing or praying or taking communion or tithing or listening to God's Word being preached, we want to keep God's glory at the very center of it all. This means we don't put ourselves, our gifts, or our preferences at the forefront, Going back to what I just said a minute ago, there's some real prep work, I think, that needs to happen before we come to worship the Lord our God. Yes, we find ways of worshiping God in our day-to-day activities that don't require this kind of prep, but coming together uh, as the church here on Sunday morning, I think, and engaging in corporate worship of the creator of the universe is no light thing. It's actually a form of warfare, and it does require preparation. It's warfare because we're putting off old sin and we're putting on new righteousness. We're fighting our sinful nature and saying, you don't get to control my feelings, the Lord does. And He said to rejoice in the day that He has made and then worship Him with gladness. We get more and more practiced with this every Sunday. As one pastor puts it, the title deed to the world is in the hand of Jesus Christ. But the hand of Jesus Christ is part of His body and we are that body. We have a battering ram about which the lords and the princes of this world know nothing. And every Lord's Day, we take another swing at their gates with it. If we come into worship with a self-centered attitude of what can I get out of today, then we'll often be disappointed with the results. Instead, our attitude ought to be, what can I be? United to God in Christ, what can I learn about him through his word? We want our hearts to be tender and not hard when we begin singing. God's glory is at the center of our worship. I take it I'm not alone in experiencing tough Sunday mornings preceded by a long and stressful week, coming into worship with a distracted and bitter heart to what I've had to deal with with this week, maybe even that morning, time and again, that melts away as I lift my gaze from myself to Christ, and I behold the glory of God and the joy of the saints around me. It is hard to stay frustrated when everyone's shouting, all glory be to Christ, at the top of their lungs. It takes the focus off of me, and it reminds me that our worship is God-glorifying. We know that when we come into the house of the Lord, we're not just coming into a building that we rented from a school or a barn that's out on some land on the north side of town. No, the gathered body of believers is the temple of God. And we know that his overall goal was to build a house for his name, 2 Samuel 7. This was, of course, the temple that Solomon would build, that Jesus would later become. So it's his house. It's not ours. His name is on the title, and we're now the heirs to it. Once we were an angry mob of sinners outside the house of the Lord, and now we find ourselves turned into actual partial owners of the house with our name written on the deeds in Christ's blood. I know I use a lot of analogies when I talk about the gospel, but then again, so did Jesus. The point is that the Lord has put us in a house for his name, and we are here to worship the name of the Lord. Consider what we saw in Psalm 29, 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Our corporate worship, therefore, is God-glorifying, not only because God has commanded us to do it, because God is the only one who is worthy of it in the first place. Who else dwells in unapproachable light? Who alone has immortality? Who is like the Lord our God, seated on high? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man can show Him His counsel? Who his thoughts can dare to fathom, who his judgments can contain, as we sang earlier this morning, God omniscient, God all knowing. Now to the next point in our sermon or our outline, our worship is Christ centered. So our worship is God glorifying because we worship God by his word. It's biblical because we obey what we see in the word. But now we want to consider how our how Christ Himself affects our corporate worship. So, another way of saying that our worship is Christ-centered is saying that our worship is gospel-centered. And that's not a buzzword, lest we forget what it means. We never want to tack on the word gospel unless it actually means something, and here it really does. The short version is because Christ is who we, uh, Christ is who we worship God through. Christ is who we worship God through. We have access to the Father through the Son because Christ is the sign and the seal of the new covenant. But let's go, that's a short version, but let's go into a longer version and unpack that a bit, because after all, we are trying to develop a theology of worship here. The gospel is that Christ fulfills the law of God on our behalf. And where Israel worshiped God because of their coming righteousness, Christians today worship God because of the righteousness that has already come, anticipating the day when all things are made new. In the Old Testament, Israel worshiped the Lord similarly yet differently than we do today. They were waiting in anticipation of God's fulfilled promise of a king and for their inheritance, which was more than just Canaan, right? From Genesis 12, "'I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever.'" 2 Samuel 7.13. These are all Old Testament promises that God gave to His people, and these are promises that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, Hebrews 9.15. So simply put, Christ is our mediator between God and man, and He Himself is is our peace. This is very important to developing a biblical view towards worship is seeing what does God's Word actually tell us about this? We worship God on this side of the cross by remembering that Christ has secured our righteousness. He's made peace by the blood of His cross, and we look forward to the day when He returns and make all things new. So our worship is not only God-glorifying, it's Christ-centered because we worship God the Father through the Son. Let's take it a step further into our last point in the outline our worship is Trinitarian. So, first, let's define what we mean by Trinitarian. It's simply this God exists in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equal in power and substance, but each different from the other, and each of them submitting to the Father. We worship God the Father through Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. In this way, our worship is Trinitarian. So i will say it once more. We worship God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the most clear pictures of this is in the baptism of Jesus, where we see all three figures of the Godhead in one place, and it is glorious. So in Luke 3, we see Jesus being baptized by John, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and it remains on him. And then we hear the voice of God, the Father, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So the language I used earlier was very specific, and it was intentional. We worship God the Father through Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So first, we worship God the Father because He's the object of our praise. His name alone is worthy. Yes, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus, but even the Son submits to the Father. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who is put... All things into subjection under him, that God may be all in all. First Corinthians fifteen, twenty eight. And though there's not a specific verse in Scripture that says the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son, the language used is always of the Spirit being sent out and equipping God's people to do his work. The order is never reversed. The Spirit never sends the Father or commissions the Son, but the Spirit is sent to Christians to be a helper. We see this in John 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not go, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. As a bit of exegesis there on the baptism scene, the Spirit descending and remaining on Jesus was significant. Anointing was a sign of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and it was typically uh, to allow someone to obey God or carry out a task. This was always a temporary situation. The Spirit descended, the person was enabled to carry out the task, and then the Spirit returned back to the Father. But we know from Isaiah's prophecy that the Spirit was actually continually with Jesus, where it rested on Him and it never left. John later confirmed that in John 3, and he tells us that the Spirit is given to Christ without measure. But after Jesus ascends into heaven, He gives us the Holy Spirit here on earth for each believer and for the church. Therefore, our corporate worship is Trinitarian in that we worship by the power of the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts and fills us with desire to praise God and obey His Word, right? It's the Spirit that brings us to repentance and fills us with understanding so that we can see and believe. Sometimes our brothers and sisters at Pentecostal or charismatic churches will talk about Spirit-filled churches and Spirit-filled services and worship. They're exactly right about that. The Spirit does fill all of our worship. And it fills the room here at MCA every time we gather here on Sunday mornings. Now, we may differ about how that manifests itself or to what extent, but we both must confess that our worship is spirit-filled because it can't be filled with anything else. So, let's finish this last section with a few more observations on Trinitarian worship and then conclude with a final few thoughts on liturgy. So we worship God the Father through Christ the Son, because Christ is the one who gives us access to the Father. Like we sang earlier in the song, his death has torn the curtain that separates us. And Christ's resurrection keeps the curtain open, and he is himself now our great high priest, ever pleading our case and advocating for us. So when we worship and pray to God the Father, we do so in Christ's name, and it's appropriate that we do so. He alone has secured us access. Our entire worship service, including our singing, has to be in light of Christ's death and resurrection. Otherwise, it's just well-performed legalism that will get us absolutely nowhere. Our worship must be through Christ because He has secured the way to God and eternal life. It's a question that should really always be on our minds. Is what we're doing actually honoring Christ? Are we obeying His teachings? I pray that we are. We worship by the power of the Holy Spirit because to do so in our own power would not only be unbiblical, I would argue that it's actually impossible. It would be a special type of hypocrisy, of white-knuckling it, to do any of this without having the Holy Spirit actually renovate your heart. It wouldn't last long because it's being propped up by something other than the eternal words of power that created the universe. He alone has the words of life. Now, I do want to say that if this is helpful to you in understanding why we worship the way we do, then praise God. But if this has bored you to tears, you can't see how this relates to the gospel at all, then it might be because I'm a bad communicator. I might not be doing a very good job of explaining this. But it might also be because you are apart from Christ. It might be because you've never actually repented of your sin and turned to God and asked for forgiveness. Believing that Christ's death and resurrection is sufficient for your salvation. None of this might mean anything because you don't actually believe it. If that's you, if none of this really means anything to you, then please hear the gospel message one more time. God has forgiven your sins in Christ and he opens the invitation to you. If the Spirit is drawing your heart to him, prompting you to repent of sin and believe fully on Christ, then obey the call. Lay down your arms and follow Christ. The cost is high. But the reward is great. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The gospel is what we preach here at Christ Redeemer. And it's also the reason we structure our worship services a certain way. As we close this morning, let me offer a few final thoughts on liturgy, the rhythms of grace, and the gospel. So, as we close, let me say that the way we worship matters. And in many ways, it reflects what we understand about God. If we come into his presence with mumbling and enter his gates with confused looks on our faces, we're exposing how much we understand about God, which is not much. If we insist that everything be driven by our feelings and preferences, we'll find that's a pretty shallow standard too. Even if we have the most high church experience, though, one that leaves no theological, liturgical stone unturned, even that can become rote and lifeless, just going through the motions the word liturgy here just means order of service. Every church has a liturgy, whether they call it that or not. If I had to give ours here a name at CRC, it'd be something between a modified Rayburn and a contemporary Reformed liturgy, if anyone's keeping score at home. But the idea is pretty simple. We just want to reflect and rehearse the gospel message at Christ Redeemer every single Sunday. The Presbyterians call this covenant renewal, but we just call it Sunday morning with a straight understanding of God's word. We do it the same way, this reason. We do it this way for the same reason that we include an actual gospel presentation in every message. We think it's the most powerful message we have to deliver to ourselves and to an unbelieving world. So at CRC, we typically order our services like this because we find it's the most natural and helpful way and faithful way to reflect the gospel. Each Sunday here, we structure our services so that we are rehearsing or re-presenting the gospel. In short, it's the holiness of God. It's the sinfulness of man. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's our understanding of the Word through the Holy Spirit. And it's our response of living in obedience and in thankfulness. So as you consider our worship here, our biblical call to worship... And our first song, sometimes our first two songs, are always about the holiness of God. The purpose of that element in our service is to direct our attention to how holy and set apart and magnificent the Lord is. As we get into our confession and assurance, sometimes the song before it too, we are starting to reflect, rightly so, on our need for God's help. When we compare ourselves to a holy God, we rightly see that we don't measure up. So we confess our need for Christ's righteousness, and then we claim the pardon as we corporately confess our sin and we corporately claim the assurance of pardon found in Scripture itself. This is the sinfulness of man, the righteousness of Christ. We typically have a song of reflection after that. Sometimes it reinforces what we just read in the assurance of pardon. Sometimes it laments sin altogether. We have a pastoral prayer, an intercessory prayer for the church that, again, is confessing our need for God's help to live rightly. We then teach the Lord's Word through a sermon. We would categorize this as the understanding part. We require the Holy Spirit's help so that we understand what's in here and we can apply it to our lives. Then we take the Lord's table in response. This is another gospel element. The Lord's table doesn't save us. It's not necessary to salvation. But it is something we do in anticipation of what's to come. When we do that, we are not only sharing a covenant meal together, but we're also anticipating that one day we'll all do this forever. We'll worship perfectly together in perfect union with Christ. And we won't just do it once a Sunday, once a week, we'll do it forever. We typically have a response of worship with two more songs, and then we, start our, we end our service the same way we started it, with God's Word, Sub- being, submit, uh, submitting and sending out through God's Word, through the benediction. That's why we don't end with the announcements, but we actually do the announcements and then the benediction. It's all very intentional, and the goal is just to reflect the gospel. It's to let everybody know here, whether uh, they look at the gathering guide or not, that we're a people who worship by the book, by the Word. One last note, when it comes to singing at CRC, we choose to sing songs and hymns that are singable, scriptural, and surviving, that is, long-lasting. Songs that are singable, scriptural, and surviving. So singable, we want to sing songs that are actually easy for all of us to sing. They shouldn't require us to have master's degrees in music, and they also shouldn't be so dependent on music and instruments that they lose all power if you sing them a cappella. That's usually a good indication that it's not worth singing, usually. Scriptural, we sing what we believe, so we're careful to choose songs each week that are not only theologically true, right? We measure it against the standard of God's Word, we try to choose songs each week that align with the message from God's Word so that every turn we are encountering and reminding ourselves of God's truth as revealed in His Word. The songs are not primarily about how we feel, right? On a horizontal plane, they're about who God is on a vertical plane. Lastly, surviving. We want these songs to be around a long time so we don't neglect the ones that have already been around for a long time. We're not afraid to introduce new songs not all of them are going to be a big hit, and that's okay. But we want to be in the habit of singing songs that could be sung with a big band, with a simple piano, or around a hospital bed with no instruments at all. We want to be singing the song, kind of songs that encourage us and that are faithfully faithful to Scripture. We want those kinds of songs to be what fills our hearts and reminds us that our doxology is propelled by our theology. The more we understand our triune God— the more we want to worship him by his word. Let's pray together, and then let's worship at the table as we take the Lord's Supper. Lord, we want to be faithful stewards of the gospel you've given us. And so to that end, we want to gather in a way that honors you. We want to be people who worship you not based on our mood that day, not based on how we're feeling, but we want to worship you because we have seen you revealed to us in Scripture, because we're reminded that we've been forgiven of our sins. Lord, would you help us worship in spirit and in truth? Would you help us to prepare our hearts as we come here every Sunday at Christ Redeemer and worship together by your Word? Would you help us to lay aside our preferences, help us to lay aside our bitterness, our long weeks, our fatigue, and our exhaustion, and to come into your presence with singing and gladness, making joyful noise unto the Lord. Would you help us do all this by the power of your Spirit and allow us to encourage one another in the process? In Christ's name, and amen.